Welcome to another edition of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN. This is a lucky late-night edition of the Bellator 289 Breakdown, which is headlined by three fights, three big fights for the Bellator promotion. In the main event, we got uh, the Bantamweight semifinal between Magomed, or actually, sorry, the, that's the third last fight from the top. Um, the main event is actually going to be a grudge match between Rafael Stats, who is currently the Bellator, I believe, interim bantamweight champion. He's going up against uh, bad guy Danny Sabatello. Very interesting fight there. Very fun fight there as well. Can't wait to see how that one goes down. Co-main event has a rematch of the women's flyweight uh, title, which Liz Carmouche snatched from Juliana Velasquez a couple months back via stoppage in the fourth round of their fight. I believe it was an early stoppage. I'm glad that they went with the rematch. And here we are Carmouche having to prove herself and defend the title for the first time and then the semi-main event if that's what you want to call it again the bantamweight tournament here we got Magomed Magomedov going up against a grappling standout patchy mix very intriguing fights all uh you know between those three uh top fights but a couple interesting fights throughout the card as well not to mention a bunch of those wrestling collegiate wrestling standouts that bellator likes to sign they're on this card as well so i believe all in all we got three six nine uh 11 fights there was another one that was scheduled but uh dre milley ended up being not cleared by the commission so lucas brendan does not get that short notice fight that he wanted that kid looked very promising on tape i literally finished his tape and then i looked at his topology page and i saw that the fight was canceled so a little bit of a bummer there but his tape was definitely fun to watch and i can't wait to see what he uh comes with next i will say this lucas brendan i truly believe this is what a lot of people think chase hooper is but this kid is a lot better. So uh, looking forward to seeing the progression of 7-0 and Lucas Brennan the next time he gets matched up. All right. Normally for this part of the podcast, I like to go to the betting recap for the last event, which was a absolute shit show for your boy. I think I only had two out of seven bets or something like that. But um, I'm going to save that for the UFC 282 show, which I'm going to be dropping tomorrow, which will be a pre-edited version compared to this live version of the Bellator breakdown that I'm going to be doing. So, uh, you know, with Bellator, I like to do it live. You know, it doesn't take as long, obviously, having to edit uh, the lock cast uh, the way that I do. So rather than wasting all that time, I'd rather just do this live, get the analysis and predictions out to you guys, and then work on the next podcast, which, again, should be dropping tomorrow evening. So make sure you guys keep in tune with that all right let's just quickly see we got three guys already or well we got 15 people here uh you know just after midnight appreciate everybody stopping by my guy black floyd in the chat saying sub man prayed super late with this one hey this is my prime working hours this is i like to work in the day afternoon time hang out with the wife chill out as well and then get back to work and then go to sleep maybe two three o'clock but this is the time that i thrive Shout out to my kid, Gutty fans. Brian Wong in the chat saying, doesn't look like FanDuel is doing Bellator in Ontario either. Uh, I found that Bellator, or sorry, FanDuel would normally slack with Bellator odds anyway. So uh, I'd say wait until maybe Thursday, maybe even Wednesday, uh, and, and then check back again because I think they'll probably post it by then. 
MMA Prodigy in the chat saying, finishing up some work. I've been drowning lately. I totally hear you as well. That's why I want to get it done with here. All right, let's get right into the breakdowns. I don't want to chat with the, the live chat too much here because uh, I know the audio listeners don't really care about the live chat. They just want to hear the analysis, especially the people watching this after the fact as well. So let's get right down to it. First fight of the night. Let me just get my banners ready here. First fight of the night. It takes place in the women's flyweight division and it takes a uh, place between uh, a former title challenger and Denise Keelholz, who's coming in at minus 155. She's going up against Elara Joanne, who's coming in at plus 135. Now, let's start off on the Denise Keelholz side, who is definitely better than the six and four record that her professional record shows. You know, when she came to the uh, came to Bellator, at least her last four fights. Sorry, let me start this again. She came to Bellator originally during that Bellator kickboxing era that uh, Bellator tried out. They didn't really work out uh, for Bellator and that uh, promotion, so they just decided to kick rocks with the kickboxing. And uh, Denise Keyholds decided to get into MMA. She was 0-1 at the time of her finishing her Bellator kickboxing career, but she managed to go on a 6-1 and run, which uh, you know led her to a title shot against Juliana Velasquez. And it was a close fight. I remember having that chalk on Juliana Velasquez and being very scared once the scorecards were being read. But thankfully, we got the bounce. I don't know if we deserved the bounce, but Keohos provided a lot of um, resistance, more than a lot of people thought that a plus 260 underdog could. And she showed off some great things. In her next fight against Kana Watanabe, she could not deal with the grappling of Watanabe. She was very uh, live with her own submissions off of her back, but Watanabe very disciplined in that grappling realm. She was able to get out of those submissions and then obviously get her own submission victory via triangle choke. But here with uh, Ilara Joanne, obviously Denise Kilholds will have the striking advantage. That's what her background is. Her ground game is improving and I think that Joanne, probably the better wrestler here, but she doesn't seem to do much once she gets those takedowns and I think that those positions where keel holds can threaten with submissions off of her back make her live to you know either get a submission off her back or reverse the position work her way back to her feet and then get back to her uh, advantage which is obviously going to be the striking here also something to know for Denise keel holds over her last two fights in Bellator both of those women Kana Watanabe and Juliana Velasquez were I believe three to four inches taller than her Finally, Keel holds fighting somebody that is 5'3", just like her. So I don't think she's going to have to worry too much about covering that distance to let her striking go. Once she throws, she throws with heat and she throws in combinations. And I think that's going to cause Elara Joanne some issues here. Now, Joanne, like I said, uh, getting on over to her side, she's come into the Bellator cage originally with a 9, or sorry, 8-4 and four record. She pulls off... Uh, you know, the, the win against Beck Rawlings in her debut as a plus 170 underdog uh, and has gone one and two since that fight. Her two losses coming to Vanessa Porto and Kana Watanabe. Um, uh, you know, but we saw uh, Joanne really struggle with that grappling game of Watanabe. I think it was 1-1 going into the third, and then we saw Watanabe get that uh, top position and really start to rain down big blows against her. Like I said, Joanne's game seems to be a lot of takedowns, and she doesn't really do much from that top position. Like, she very rarely is able to successfully pass the guard of her opponent. You see um, the... the um, 
you see the the referee standing her up every now and then. And I think that's where she's going to struggle here against Denise. I don't think those passes are going to come as early or as easily as most people expect it to be. I see the line kind of closing a little bit, as I did notice that uh, Denise was closer to minus 170. But I see that minus 150 now on her uh, over there on bet online. Uh, you know, I might have to jump on it at this point. But the spot that I'm going to be looking at, which hasn't been released as of yet, is the under two and a half. I, I think there's going to be some violence here. I think there's going to be a finish. I think it all ultimately ends up being Denise Keelholds who ends up getting the knockout victory here. Uh, Joanne, she is from the Pitbull Brothers camp, but her striking is really not as refined as those Pitbull uh, brothers. You know, a lot of her strikes come with just power, the intentions of either knocking you to the ground or closing that distance so that she can get that takedown and drag you to the mat. But I'm not sold in it. Uh, you know, not impressed with what she's able to do from on top. I really think that Kyo Hodes will be the one damaging throughout this matchup. And I don't think that she's going to get submitted here. So uh, I like Kyo Hodes. I like the fact that her line is coming down now. I'm going to keep an eye on it. Maybe if it gets to minus 140, take a shot there. But as of this recording, I might actually take a uh, 1.5 unit shot on that minus 150, but I'll be interested to see what the under two and a half is going to look like once that actually drops here. So official prediction, keel holds, keel holds by KO, but I like it. Uh, Paizo DFS in the chat. What up, Locke? Love the late night ones. I can actually watch live. Appreciate the love. I know you're a West Coaster as well, so it's only 9.30 for you there. Uh, appreciate the love, my friend. Mr. Jingles, let's fucking go, Locke. Bounce back with Bellator and UFC. And LFA. I'll be digging my toe or dipping my toes into the LFA waters this week, so stay tuned for some of that. That will I'll drop a main event breakdown for uh, the YouTube, but in terms of the rest of the card, I'm only going to be dropping that on the Patreon, so shout out to anybody that's on there. CM in the chat saying, if Stotts loses to Sabatello, I'll drag my nuts on the bulldozer. <laughs> well, wait to hear what I think about that matchup when we get up there. All right, next fight up. Let me just quickly make sure the order is correct here. I'm going by topology order. Uh, the next fight up is actually a welterweight matchup between uh, collegiate wrestling standout Kyle Crutchmer comes in at minus 280. He's going up against Jaleel Willis, who's coming in at plus 235. Now, Jaleel Willis initially came in uh, as a you know, somewhat of a bright prospect. I think he only had two losses before he uh, initially came to Bellator. He started off Bellator with a two-fight winning streak with wins over Macon Mendonca and Mark Leminger. And in those fights, he was able to showcase his superior striking. He's very fast and his speed and athleticism have really been the reason for his success throughout his MMA career. But when guys are able to get that grappling going against him too, he he does struggle a little bit. Like he's been, uh, apparently he's been wrestling since he was like seven or eight years old, but it doesn't really showcase in terms of his defensive grappling. And that's where I think he could find some issues here. Uh, Mohamed Berkhamov obviously gets him to the ground and eventually gets the guillotine choke. Saba Homasi drops him and then gets him with an arm triangle choke. So you see that he can be ruffled and he can be pushed around. I do think that Kyle Crutchmer uh, will you know, we know what he brings to the table, right? Wrestling standout. I believe he still trains with AKA, if I'm not mistaken. A very strong wrestler, very strong guy that imposes as well against his opponents. And, you know, earlier in his MMA career, he's finishing guys. But as of late, going the distance in his last three, well, last four fights, going three in one of those spots. His one loss against Cameron Lachimov, obviously he was a big favorite going into that fight, minus 320, but he couldn't really get his wrestling going. You know, Lachimov, a very strong, powerful, 
powerful striker had like that low power stance as well where it seemed like he was fainting the uppercut and just trying to make sure that Crutchmer stayed on the outside and Crutchmer could do nothing about it still improving his striking he still needs improving is what I should say but you know it his takedown game looked to work way more in his next three fights where his opponents weren't as threatening with that big power they were throwing in return Julio Willis not too big of a power puncher but a guy that will pitter-patter you from the outside but I think that Crutchmer is going to be able to close that distance get his hands on Jaleel drag him to the ground rinse and repeat we probably see another decision victory for him here so um you know Jaleel very seasoned you know 15 and 4 amateur record or sorry 15 and 4 professional MMA record hoping to uh get another victory here in the the Bellator cage but I think he's going to struggle with that wrestling too much and I think that we see Crutchmer get his hand raised in this spot all right Let's move on to the next fight, which takes place in the welterweight division. Let me just pull it up here. We got Patrick Downey coming in as a minus 1,500 favorite. He's going up against Christian Eccles, who's coming in at plus 900. Now, both these guys absolutely jacked. You know, Patrick Downey, uh, another Collegiate wrestling standout that the Bellator uh, brass is seeming to uh, groom and give him in the the right matchups to slowly get that experience, slowly get his feet wet inside the cage so that he can slowly start making that run towards that title. He is not like those guys that come into Bellator at 24 or 25 years old. He's already 30. Like he turned 30 back in August. So he's got to get it going. He's got to stay busy and he's got to go out there and continue to get these wins. His last fight was back in August. So four months removed from that fight. Good for him to get back into the cage that quickly, especially with that fight only being 36 seconds long. He was able to get the takedown pretty much immediately, locked up an arm triangle choke, sayonara, he gets his first win. Christian Eccles, on the other hand, a gorilla himself, right? His nickname is the Vanilla Gorilla. The guy's absolutely jacked when you look at his Instagram page. He trains out of a small gym in Georgia, uh, mainly a 10th planet jiu-jitsu gym. And you can see, you know, like his power grappling style when he is able to get these guys to the ground. His last two wins coming all within 55 seconds uh, combined, but both those wins coming via finish. Like he aggressively attacks submissions when he's able to get his opponents to the mat. But his first two losses in professional MMA, one came to Trishan Gore, who was able to choke him out halfway through that first round. And then in the second fight uh, against Derek Overstreet, he got taken down and was not able to do much as uh, Derek Overstreet was able to just pummel him from that top position. Obviously, I think Downey wins this fight. But minus 1,500, no way. What I'm going to be looking at is the under one and a half. I'm fully expecting it to be uh, juiced up, but if we can get it anywhere around that minus 200 range or better, I think there is some value there considering how finish-centric both of these fighters are. No matter if it's Echoes getting a submission from that top position or if it's going to be... Um, if it will be, uh, why, why am I blanking on his name? Downey, whether it's going to be Downey getting that finish from on top, uh, I think it's just a matter of time before whoever gets that top position is able to get the finish. But minus 1500 on Downey, I would never recommend parlaying anything like that. It just does not add enough to your parlays. Look for him inside the distance as a potential parlay piece, but even that's probably going to be about minus 600. Crazy, crazy line, but I'd rather go with the under one and a half here, thinking that it will um, it will be the, the the way to attack this fight uh, and make some money. Sorry, let me just adjust. There we go. That looks a lot better. 
<laughs> so we're gonna go down. He absolutely butchered the name there on the on the graphic. I apologize for that, but I'm gonna take him to win this first round TKO without too much issues. All right, let's get to the next fight here, which is gonna be taking place in the women's flyweight division. We got Randy Field coming in at minus two fifty, and uh. Jeez, I, I forgot a first name already off the top. Uh, Christina Katsikis coming in at plus 210. Now, Randy Field, a uh, fellow Canadian who trains in that Windsor, Detroit area. A lot of fighters that train in Windsor, they usually cross-train with Myth with Michigan top team, which is just across the border there uh, in, in Detroit. So, um, or, or at least I should say North, Northern Michigan. Randy Field uh, seemed to be a decent prospect, uh, somebody that the you know the, the Canadians could get a little bit excited about, but she did have a lengthy layoff between 2019 and 2021, which is when she returned, competed in Bellator, and lost to Sumiko Inaba via second round arm triangle choke. Now, I think that she was just completely outmatched in that fight, right? Randy Field, she's a decent uh, prospect, but she was plus 435 going into that fight. That gives you all you need to know there, right? Inaba, very fluid with her striking, which is obviously what her advantage was there against Field. And then even when she was able to drag the fight to the ground, she was able to have her way in that matchup. Randy Field having close competitive matchups against women, you know, uh, Melissa Karajinas, uh, who's three and five. I, I know of this woman, and I believe that she even has a, a worse record now, uh, a three and seven record now, right? That was back in 2019. And I believe that was also down at 115 pounds. So after that lengthy layoff and the fact that Bellator does not have a strawweight division, Randy Field going up to 125 pounds. And I think that might work against her, especially in this matchup against Christina Katsikis. Randy Field 5-3 with a 62-inch reach, while on the flip side for Katsikis 5-4 with a 63-inch reach. But man, is she bulky. She is very strong. She is very difficult to deal with, especially when she's able to get her hands on you and drag you to the mat. She is a relentless grappler and works to consistently get you to the ground, right? Her striking, god-awful, horrible. Like, it's not even there. It's not worth even talking about, if I'm being honest. And Randy Field will definitely have the advantage there, but I think the power that she lacks in her hands will ultimately be her downfall because I think Katsikis is just going to walk through that because we've seen it time and time again on her on on her tape that she doesn't mind getting hit. She will continuously move forward. She'll drag you to the ground, and she's going to grind you out. I think that's where Randy Field will eventually break. There is no way that Randy Field should be minus 250 here. You know, even Katsikis was a big dog to Inaba. Katsikis was plus 400 in that fight. But just because they're both plus 400 to Inaba does not mean that Randy Field should be minus 250 here against Katsikis. Randy Field is just not that dangerous, in my opinion. Technically speaking, I believe she is the better fighter. But I think that grind and that grappling and that consistent forward pressure of Katsikis is going to catch up to Field here. And then her just being the much stronger fighter will likely allow her to get that position on top where she can just grind and grind and grind. Now, uh, again, her her regional tapes look look very sloppy. Like I said, her striking, non-existent. It looks horrible. But I just like the fact that she continuously moves forward and can get those positions. And I think Randy Field is very much going to struggle with those spots. I'm hoping I'm wrong because I'm a big you know Field fan because she's Canadian and hoping that she can actually pull off the win here. But I think that this is a damn good underdog in women's MMA. And, uh, you know, a fighter of Randy Fields level at minus 250 
that shouldn't happen. Like if it's minus 150, minus 130 field, okay, then I can completely understand that. But this line is far too wide, in my opinion. Uh, Katsikis will grind her out. And uh, just like her nickname, the, the meat grinder, she's going to grind her down. And I think she'll win this fight uh, probably via decision. I'm trying to recall if I... Uh, what did I have her? Uh, Katsikis inside the distance. I, I put a 3 out of 10 level of confidence there. Like there is a potential that she could get a submission. She does like to attack the arm triangle choke when she gets the opportunity. I'll be looking at what the inside the distance line is for that. If it's, you know, plus 800 or something crazy like that, maybe I'll take a little bit of a sprinkle on that. But just her straight up money line plus 210 worth a shot in my opinion. All right. Let us keep this moving along. Next up, we're going to be talking about a men's featherweight fight between Kai Kamaka the third, who comes in at minus 300 and Kevin Bohm who comes in at plus 250. Like I really think fighter uh, when you're talking about Bellator lines, if they have any semblance of a recognizable name, a former UFC fighter, anything like that, they're always going to be chalk because a lot of people expect that, you know, Bellator, that's the place around the prelims. It's a lot of setup matchups where the big favorite or the known name should go out there and get the win. Now, I, I do think Kamaka still likely wins this matchup, but minus 300 is an outrageous line. He's likely the better technical striker here, but Baum is a, a gritty dude, a tough guy to put away, right? Like if you don't, if you just want to uh, judge uh boom off of his last fight where he got finished pretty quickly by uh, a Dagestani rug Russian and Ahmed Magomedov I think you're doing yourself a disservice like on the regional scene the guy's doing work he's putting in work dragging opponents to the ground and you know landing significant strikes on the feet I think Kamaka will struggle with that here against Kevin Boom. if Kamaka can continuously get back to his feet because I know that bomb will likely be looking for the takedown to sway the judges his way but if Kamaka can get back to his feet, I think he'll be able to be the one that lands the more significant strikes and likely get the judge's uh, decision here. But at minus 300, I think it's an outrageous line to trust him in a fight where Bomb is going to be moving forward, going to be throwing big bombs of his own, and then likely be mixing in the grappling as well. So uh, minus 300, not safe here on Kamaka. I'm going to pick him to win, but I want none of that big uh, favorite line here at minus 300. Kamaka, again, Kamaka, better technical striker, but I just think that bomb is a tough, gritty journeyman at this time who could give issues to a guy like Kamaka. Excuse me. All right. Let's keep this rolling along. I can feel my throat catching up to me a little bit here, so I want to try to get through this as best as I can. Try to save my voice as best as I can for the main card as well. Nothing like some ice cold water. All right, next up, <clears throat> men's bantamweight division. We got Cass Bell coming in at plus 430 versus Jared Scoggins, who's coming in at minus 560. Now, remember what I said last time about, uh, you know, UFC fighters and recognizable names automatically being chalk and Bellator? This is another spot. Right, I, I do. Don't get me wrong. I think Scoggins wins, but I don't know if the line should be this wide. Now, Scoggins, uh, very highly touted prospect you know all the way up in 2020 when he was nine and one or sorry ten and one and captured the cffc uh bantamweight title uh before that he had taken over a, a two-year layoff and i've been doing everything in my power to figure out why but i just have not been able to find it he glosses over a little bit but never talks about why he had to take that long of a layoff 
Now, between his fight between Thomas Vasquez and Josh Hill, had to take another extended layoff, but a lot of that was due to, you know, his opponents. You know, uh, so Toby Mesh missed weight. That fight gets canceled. That was back in October of 2020. Uh, Scoggin, uh, unfortunately, had to withdraw against Magomed Magomedov back in uh, April of 2021. He was scheduled again in July of 2021, but then got pulled due to COVID right before he was about to hop on a flight and head on over to wherever that event was taking place. Then, luckily for him, five months later, he gets matched up with Josh Hill. Not the outcome he wanted as he gets knocked out cold by Josh Hill. Josh Hill, not known to be much of a power puncher, but he was able to cash or, or get his first uh, finished victory in a long time. Now, Jared Scoggins, he does fight kind of like his brother, Justin, right? He has that karate stance, both guys training out of that South Carolina area. We've seen him kind of mix it up with Wonderboy Thompson. You can see similar styles with how they stand, right? Karate style, uh, bouncing on the balls of their feet, moving back and forth very quick as well. But they don't, or at least Jared doesn't use it as effectively as as um, uh, Stephen Thompson or even like his brother Justin Scoggins. Like he uses it to fill the gaps and fill the time. But what he really wants to do is push you up against the cage, drag you to the mat, grind you through the mat. No real urgency in looking for a stoppage. Like I believe, let me just look here. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six out of his 10 victories coming via decision. Uh, one of those fights he actually got a stoppage in. I'm not sure exactly how it came about as I was not able to get access to that fight uh, against Dexter Wright, but he finishes him with six seconds left in that first run. Also, Dexter Wright, five and five at the time, currently with a five and six record, hasn't competed since then. I'm assuming not a guy that a lot of people thought had much potential anyway. Uh, Cass Bell, uh, a veteran, only at five and two, a little bit of a veteran, right? Uh, on the regional scene, he had a seven and five record fighting guys like Chris, uh, Chris Lencioni. Uh, he even fought Kevin Baum on the regional scene, who we just spoke about, uh, was able to rear naked choke him in the second round. Uh, started his MMA career five and oh, all five of those fights coming in Bellator, four of those fights coming via finish. But unfortunately, last two fights coming up short against the top of the bantamweight division in Bellator, right? He loses the fight to Rafion Stotts. Uh, halfway through that third round, gets rear naked choke there. Stotts too much for him in the grappling room. And Jornal Lugo, another guy that was able to land takedowns and really grind on Caspell and take home a decision victory. Now it's been over a year and a half since Caspell has stepped inside the cage. So another guy that's been dealing with um, you know, issues of his own. He was scheduled back in April against Gaston Bolanos. That fight eventually falls through. Now here he is against Jared Scoggins. He's a very unorthodox fighter right he likes to throw a lot of kicks he has a mean jiu-jitsu game as well but i think that if you can out grapple him and you can stay safe in those positions and not get submitted he's going to have a tough time to pull off much and i think that's the issue here uh, against jared scoggins um scoggins will likely be too strong for him to, for him on top and i think that could uh, potentially cause him issues my one hold up which is why i'm like you know don't throw jared scoggins into all your parlays is Scoggins, before his layoff, used to fight at 125 pounds. And I kind of touched on this when I was talking about him uh, at the top of the breakdown. But since coming to, uh, or so, sorry, since coming back from 2018 uh, and that long layoff, comes up to 135 pounds. And Cass Bell, you know, is going to have a three inch height advantage as well as a, uh, what is it? Actually, uh, he's going to be at a slight reach disadvantage here. But in terms of his size, he's just going to be a bigger guy. So I wonder if that's going to cause Jared any troubles, especially when he's trying to hold a guy like Caspell down, who's going to be actively seeking submissions off of his back. So I, I do think Scoggins wins. 
I do think he grinds this one out. I would possibly be looking at the overs if they're good enough, you know, anything around that minus 150 range for the over two and a half. Um, but outside of that, I don't really want much to do the, do with this. Uh, you know, closing in on minus 600 now for Jared Scoggins, I don't really see the need to to throw him in there and and tie up so much money with him, given some of the, the question marks that we've had. Last thing I'll say about this, Jared Scoggins did not look like he was in the greatest shape in his last fight against uh, Josh Hill. I'm not sure if that was because now he's up an extra 10 pounds, but he looked phenomenal in the Thomas Vasquez fight. So I wonder what kind of shape he's going to come into this fight with. I think he missed weight in the Josh Hill fight, if I'm not mistaken. Let's see if he makes weight on Thursday and then decide to uh, you know, proceed with that fight after that. But I'll be looking at the overs more than anything. But I do think that Scoggins grinds his way to a decision victory here. All right. Let's get to the next fight, which is going to be taking place in the Bellator welterweight division here. This one goes down between Mark Leminger, who comes in at minus 145, and Michael Lombardo, who comes in at plus 125. Now, I always giggle a little bit whenever I see Lombardo fighting because one of my good friends and one of uh, Brian Wong's good friends, who's uh, I believe still in the chat here, hopefully still in the chat, uh, our friend, uh, you know, a guy that did jujitsu at the gym that we uh, kind of all know each other from, uh, is also named Michael Lombardo. So it kind of threw me off when I first saw him on the Contender Series a couple years ago. Uh, solid fighter. You know, I, I am impressed with what I saw from him. Now, let's quickly talk about uh, his run over his last couple fights. He has a 12-3 and record right now. He's 32 years old. He'll be 33 in April. But, uh, you know, he, he joined Bellator back in April of this year. Lost to Kyle Crutchmer. Very tough fight for him. But he showed some great things there. He did a good job in terms of nullifying the amount of damage that Kyle can do from on top. He did a good job in terms of working back to his feet and really getting back to work with the striking, a mean calf kick that he does have as well, which is how he actually picked up his last victory in PFL back in August of 2021. He butchered the lead leg of his opponents, and it only took three and a half minutes for his opponent to pretty much say uncle and eventually have that fight stopped. Uh, before that was his second stint on the contender series where he chose to go with a grapple heavy approach against a much bigger and taller Corey Coop uh, and, or Cuppy, I think was his name. Uh, and obviously we know Dana on the contender series does not seeing, uh, does not like seeing guys uh, get grapple fucked. And that's essentially what we saw in that fight. Michael Lombardo, very dominant in terms of getting those positions, but not uh, did not do enough to end up earning the contract. But I think the guy still has a decent enough future to be like a, a Bellator mainstay. And I think that this is a fight for him to showcase that. Mark Leminger, on the other hand, comes in with a 12-5 and five record. I like to call him the poor man's Luke Rockhold. Like he seems to have a big frame and big build for this 170-pound division. And just the way that they like their, their bodies look. Luke Rockhold and this guy, pretty much the same. But Mark Leminger, far cry from the, the talent that Luke Rockhold was when he was in his prime. Since joining Bellator, Mark Leminger has accrued a 2-4 and four record, although a couple of those losses coming against some pretty solid talent. Yaroslav Amosov, as well as Naaman Gracie, we saw that uh, he got finished in both of those fights, both in the first round. Not a good look for him. He trains out of a, a small gym in Wisconsin, has a bit of a wrestling background as well, and you see that's how he normally gets his wins when he's able to drag guys to the mat. Jake Smith, Demarcus Johnson, he's able to get these guys to the ground and grind them out. 
Jaleel Willis. He has a solid second round against Jaleel Willis where he gets him to the ground and is able to control him, but it's ultimately his inability to effectively control opponents. Uh, you know, Jaleel, we saw him continuously get up. Uh, Oliver Ankamp uh, attacking what submissions off his back consistently. Um, you know, Leminger was winning that fight until he eventually got caught in that choke, but it just goes to show that he's just not really that dominant from that top position. Jaleel Willis was just piecing him up on the feet, which is why he was able to get the win, and which is why I'm kind of leaning on Lombardo here to, you know, if he won, gets taken down, he'll be able to work back to his feet. I have no doubt about that. And then on the feet, I think he'll be the more consistent striker, and I think that he'll be able to damage that lead leg of Michael Lem or of of Leminger, let his hands go after that, and eventually just outpoint him. You know, I, I think he could potentially actually even finish him later on in this matchup. Uh, I haven't seen what the inside the distance line is yet because it obviously hasn't dropped, but I do think he has the power to finish a guy like Mark Leminger, who, uh, you know, on the feet seems like a deer in headlights at times, especially when he starts to slow down. Like we're talking about name and grace. You just not or knock this guy out back in September of last year. Like you can't be getting knocked out by name and Gracie is all I got to say. But, um, yeah, I, I like Lombardo here. I think he's a solid dog at plus 125. Uh, like I said, I think he stops most of the takedowns, gets back to his feet if he does get taken down, and then from there will start to uh, get the better of Lemon with the striking and potentially knocks him out later on in this matchup. <clears throat> Low T City uh, Ortega saying, Lock, I know Demo is to it. It is, but. Got to get this content out for you guys. I know a lot of people in the morning are going to be very happy to see a Bellator 289 breakdown uh, in their uh, subscription feeds. All right, let's get back on track. We only got a couple fights left here, folks. Let me just wet the whistle again real quick, and we'll get right back into it with a featherweight fight that Bellator is going to be putting on here. All right, next up, we got Cody Law coming in at minus 295. His opponent, Chris Lencioni, coming in at plus 245. Now, Cody Law is going to be looking to bounce back from his first professional MMA loss from back in June where he got completely outworked by James Gonzalez. Now, James Gonzalez came into that fight as a very stiff underdog, especially with Cody Law being a minus 800 that night. But Cody could not get his grappling going. He tried sticking with the striking, and he was getting beat to the punch. James Gonzalez was very good with staying consistent with his striking, staying consistent with his output, and continuously disrupting the flow of Cody Law. And then once Cody Law started to get desperate, that's where you really start to get... Um, you know, frustrated, and we saw him go for really ill-advised takedown attempts, which James Gonzalez was able to either reverse or completely stuff, get back to his feet, and then go to work with his striking again. Uh, so big learning lesson there from Cody Law, who was just going out there and dummying fools over his last several fights, you know, just knocking guys out in the first round. Once he actually got his first taste of stiff competition, that's where it started to go downhill. Chris Lencioni, on the other hand, nine and three veteran, uh, who's fought you know for a ton of promotions. Uh, he did fight for Bellator a couple times. Beat AJ Agazarm, who was a uh, you know highly touted jujitsu guy coming into Bellator. Excuse me, Lencioni did a great job of uh, you know touching him up on the feet, and then even when it was able to get him to the ground. 
There's nothing that Agazarm could do off of his back as Lencioni was too crafty for him in those spots. Lencioni, uh, you know, a, a, a solid grappler in his own right, good BJJ, uh, a very funky and weird striking style as well, which could potentially cause a guy like Cody Law some issues. But we have seen the spots where uh, Chris can be grinded out, right? Don Shane is for, uh, a recent UFC signee who just got starched by Sudik Yusuf. We saw Don Shane go out there and just grapple him through the mat and have major success doing so. Chris currently on a two-fight winning streak. Uh, one of those, the first of those wins coming against former UFC fighter Draco Rodriguez, where uh, Rodriguez couldn't really do much, right? He was the one getting taken down and he was the one getting outworked. Lencioni uh, showcased very good skills all around in that matchup. Here against Cody Lott, like, I don't have the confidence in Lencioni to, to back him as a plus 245 dog, but nor should you have the confidence to go out there and back Cody Law as a big favorite, uh, again, in that minus 300 range against a guy in Chris who's likely not going to be a walkover, similar to what James Adcock and Colton Ham were for uh, Cody Law prior in or earlier in his Bellator career. This guy's going to fight. This guy's going to bring it to Cody Law, and this could be a, another potential upset opportunity. But... I really think that we're going to see Cody um, fix up the issues that he had in the James Gonzalez fight, look to get this fight to the ground more often. And considering that Lencioni's takedown defense, not the greatest, I think Law is going to successfully get those takedowns and grind this fight out. Some people might see this as a buy-low opportunity on Cody Law. For me, it's more so of a sit-back-and-watch fight because Lencioni is crafty enough to pull off a submission victory or even an upset victory of his own. What I might be looking at is the overs here, if we can get a good enough line on it, because I think that Lencioni will be tough to put away, and I think that we'll just see a grapple-heavy approach from Cody Law just to get back into the win column, rebound from that loss, get that confidence back, and then go back to trying to improve his skill set and uh, you know strike a little bit more with his opponents. But for now, against a guy like Lencioni, who's going to have a size advantage over him as well, let's just sit back and let's just enjoy this fight um, and, and see how... Uh, see how it plays out but let's go let's or let's go law law by decision that's where we'll keep it mma locker room saying sometimes i think you're gonna tell us ghost stories in the dark <laughs> i just like this vibe i'd be vibing locky late night style you know what it is all right let's get to the next matchup here another collegiate wrestling standout this fight taking place in the middleweight division. <clears throat> we have Dalton Ross coming in at minus 750 and Anthony Adams coming in at plus 550. Now, Dalton Ross has a squeaky clean 7-0 professional MMA record and has had all of those fights come under the Bellator banner. Uh, he uh, pretty much has dusted pretty much all of his opponents. Uh, actually, that's a little bit of a stretch. He's finished four out of his seven victories, uh, most recently uh, knocking out Romero Cotton in round three, 38 seconds into round three of their last fight. He has showcased that he can either uh, strike with you or grapple with you, which is obviously his bread and butter. He's able to grind guys out, take them to the mat, and he seems to have a very good gas tank and can do this successfully for 15 minutes if, if required. 
Now, Anthony Adams, nine and two record, a little bit of a regional show journeyman. Uh, you know, most people know him for uh, the contender series where he lost both of his matchups uh, back in 2018. He lost a split decision, managed to pick up a win in the LFA scene a year later. And then the UFC brought him back or sorry, the contender series brought him back in 2020, where he ended up losing via decision to Impa Kasanganai. But since that fight, uh, he had a bunch of uh, fights fall through. Uh, actually, even since the, the LFA fight that he had back in January of 2019, he's had a combined three, six, nine fights fall through, only two of them coming to fruition, but he has a one-in-one record in that span. But the momentum is on his side as he did pick up a victory last time around in September of 2021 where he defeated Khalid Murtazaliyev as a plus 320 underdog. I'm not sure what Murtazaliyev was thinking in that matchup because he could have taken this fight to the ground and grinded Anthony Adams out, but he was content fighting Adams in his uh, comfort zone, which is the striking. And that's where, you know, if Dalton Rostow wants to mix it up with Adams, that might not be the best way to go about it. Anthony is a very consistent striker, has some decent output and volume, but I think it's ultimately going to be the wrestling game of Dalton Rostow and hopefully the fight IQ of Dalton, which will allow him to get his hand raised in this matchup he should start to take Anthony to the ground. Once he starts to see that Adams is going to be a very uh, you know, consistent striker, a guy that's going to continuously be throwing volume and output. If he can recognize that early here, hopefully he goes to his wrestling. Hopefully he's able to grind this one out. I'm thinking via decision. I think Adams is going to be tough to put away from him. But again, minus 750, very tough for me to go out there and be like, hey, go ahead, bet the minus 750. But he should win this fight. He should cruise. I think he is probably one of the best, uh, you know, wrestling heavy prospects that uh, Bellator has put their hands on. And I can't wait to see how he continues to transform his game. Not to mention against a, you know, a journeyman veteran like Adams. This would be a good win under his belt. Let's see how it goes. And it seems like the chat agrees here as well. My guy Paizo DFS saying Dalton Rasta is the truth. Low T City Ortega saying Rasta is an inevitable title challenger. I absolutely agree with that as well all right we're about to get to the good ones folks let me wet the whistle one more time and we'll get into the first bantamweight fight that we have of the card this is the semifinals, folks all right first bantamweight grand prix fight up of the night magomed magomedov who comes in at minus 140 Patchy Mix plus 120. Now, let's start off on the Patchy Mix side, who has a 16-1 and shiny record there. His only loss coming with his first title shot that he got for Bellator four fights ago, where he came up short against Juan Archuleta. In that fight, he could not get his grappling going, and he was going to be significantly significantly outmatched in the striking realm. And Juan Archuleta was able to get out of bad positions whenever he found himself in there. And then when they're back at distance, Archuleta was the one landing the more significant strikes, ultimately getting his hand raised via decision in that spot. After that, Patchy Mix goes on a three-fight winning streak, including a victory over um, standout Kyoji Horoguchi. But... I think we have to kind of temper our expectations of Patchy Mix and, and not get too far ahead of ourselves because he beat a guy like Horiguchi, who's, you know, very renowned as one of the best flyweights in the world. But keyword there, flyweight. Horiguchi forced to fight at uh, Bantamweight in Bellator as Bellator doesn't have a flyweight division. 
And we saw the size advantage of Patchy Mix really work out for him there. I think it was 2-2 going into that last round. And Patchy Mix is like, you know what? Let me just get a hold of this guy because it's going to get be very hard for him to get him off of or get me off of him. And uh, that's what happened, man. Patchy Mix has a very smothering style with his jiu-jitsu. Very difficult to deal with as well when he can uh, get his hands on you. He transitions from position to position very flawlessly. And I really believe, you know, I think a lot of people would agree with me. He was the original human backpack. Right. Aljamain Sterling is the self-proclaimed human backpack now, but like I was watching tape on Patchy Mix from way back in the day, and this guy was clearly the human backpack. Once he gets your back, it is hard to get him off. He can either strangle you with a rear naked choke or control you long enough that he'll end up winning that round should he get it at least halfway through the round. Um, Magomed Magomedov, obviously a very highly touted prospect coming into Bellator as he was the only guy to have defeated Piriyan at that point. He did obviously lose the uh, rematch that they had and then he went on to win a couple more fights in ACB before eventually signing with uh, Bellator back at the ending of 2020. Makes a successful Bellator debut and puts together two straight wins to eventually line himself up against Rafian Stotts where he came in as a pretty hefty favorite. Minus 550. The Russian tax was alive and well that night but Rafian Stotts had other plans. You know, Magomed could not get much going on Rafion Stotts there, but I think his inability to chain wrestle against Stotts caused him some issues in that spot. You know, and then on the feet, Stotts, a little bit more proactive uh, with the striking, even was uh, able to get a takedown or two of his own, which was why he ended up getting his hand raised in that spot. Magomedov eventually bounced back against Enrique Barzola, although... You know, but closer fight than a lot of people would expect considering how much hopes and, and potential people expected from Magomedov. He was a minus 160 favorite there, and it seemed to be a very close matchup going into that fourth round, but he eventually pulled off that guillotine choke, getting his hand raised, and then getting this spot here against uh, Patchy Mix in the semifinals. I do think that Patchy Mix style of chain wrestling and and jujitsu and just smothering is going to cause Magomed Magomedov some issues here. Magomedov, not, you know, uh, he'll have a bit of a striking advantage here, but I don't think it's going to be to the point that it's going to cause Patchy Mix as much trouble as the Juan Archuleta fight did. I think Patchy is going to be able to get his hands on Magomedov, and Magomedov does this, has this tendency of whenever guys try to get a hold of him, he does give up his back. The Barzola fight is a perfect example of that, where we see that situation play out over and over again. And then in those spots, we know Patchy Mix has no qualms about just hopping on your back, sinking in that, uh, the body lock, and then just going to work from there. I think he's going to consistently be able to get those spots, and I think that's going to allow him to get this, uh, get the victory here by controlling at least three out of the five rounds that we have in this fight. Uh, again, it might not be a popular pick, but I do think that match, or sorry, mix, um, I want to call him matchy picks. <laughs> uh, I do think that mix is going to get those positions, and it's going to be hard for Magomedov to get him off of him. So I'll go mix to pull off the upset here. Uh, it should be a phenomenal fight, should be a great fight, but I think that mix has uh, you know, uh, an edge here, uh, especially with the, uh, the plus 120 line that we're getting. I think that's a damn good line here. It could be a pick em fight. It's a close fight, don't get me wrong. But I think that Mix is going to get those positions and eventually get his hand raised via decision in this spot. All right. Next up, we take a break from the Bantamweights and we have a Bellator women's flyweight title fight. 
where we have Liz Carmouche coming in as the reigning champion. She comes in at plus 160. She's going up against Juliana Velasquez, who uh, she got the title from, and Velasquez coming in at minus 190. Now, the last time that they were matched up against each other, Juliana Velasquez was a bit of a bigger favorite. You know, I believe, uh, let me just pull it up here, she was a minus, uh, well, minus 120 does not sound right. I swear that was a little bit uh, wider. Let me just pull it up on best fight odds here. Because I swear it was a lot wider than that. Uh, Juliana Velasquez, where is it? Minus 120. Wow. What am I? Uh, oh, this, that's where I got it wrong. She opened up at minus 195. And then by fight time, she was all the way up down to minus 120. As a lot of money came in on Liz Carmouche that night. Maybe we should. Hey, gambling scandal. Why don't we look into that line movement? <laughs> <laughs> but then again, it was progressively from minus one uh, ninety five down to minus one twenty. But odds makers, gamblers, betters, and the public seem to agree that Velasquez should have probably been minus one ninety the entire time. Now, if you guys remember that first fight between Carmouche and Vasquez, I think it was two one for Velasquez going into that uh, fourth round, and then Carmouche was able to get that dominant top position where she trapped Velasquez a bit. Uh, I think it was in a crucifix position, and then she started raining down elbows, and the referee stepped in. Now, I truly believe that it was a bit of a, uh, a quick stoppage. Right, you got to give somebody a little bit more of a chance to work out of that position. It seemed like she was slowly starting to squirm and get out of those spots, but then Carmouche landed like three or four big elbows, and that's where she really started to get the momentum going. You get the crowd in the ruckus, which was like a uh, you know a, a pro Carmouche crowd that possibly plays into the the referees had that maybe these shots are landing more significantly than they actually are, and Velasquez is in more trouble than she should be. Let me stop this fight. You see, as soon as this fight stops, Velasquez looks at the ref like, what the fuck? Like, I thought she passed the what the fuck test, right? Shout out to my co-main event or co-maniacs, co-main event maniacs, whatever they call them. CME, if anybody listens to the co-main event podcast, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas, you guys know what I'm talking about. But as she passed the what the fuck test, she said what the fuck right away. She's, you know, she's still on her butt, but like she was conscious. She, She knew where she was. I thought she should have given more. She she should have been given more of a chance to work out of that bad position, but she was not, unfortunately. But she's the better striker here. Carmouche does a good job in terms of staying active, um, but I think for Carmouche to have success, I think she needs to <clears throat> really get the fight to the mat and utilize her superior jujitsu. Velasquez, good jujitsu player in her own right, but I was surprised her inability to you know dominate those those positions a little bit more. You know, in the striking, you know, if she can just keep that jab out there when, you know, that that's, uh, what was it, the the second round and the third round, you see her really working that jab and it was causing Carmouche some issues. Hopefully she can stick to that consistent elbow with her striking and, and cause her even more issues. But like we saw in the first fight, Carmouche can be squirmy enough to cause this fight to be a lot closer. Minus 190, I roughly do agree that the line should be there, but there is no edge, in my opinion, to find the value in terms of betting Velasquez at minus 190. If this action does come in on Carmouche again and we get Velasquez around minus 150, maybe I'll take a shot at that point. I do believe she is the better fighter. She's the younger fighter, obviously, here as well. But uh, actually, I don't think it's by a whole lot now that I'm remembering correctly. She's 36 years old compared to Liz Carmouche, uh, who's I, who I believe, yeah, she's going to be 39 back or, or in February. But I do think that Velasquez... A little bit of the youth on her on her side, but the size advantage, the striking advantage, uh, the strength advantage, 
if she can put that together properly here, I think she reclaims her title and uh, we get another and new on this event. So I'm going to go Velasquez. Velasquez by decision. Minus 190. Mm, I'm going to need some action on Carmouche to come in if I want to bet the Velasquez side. And, I'm, and I mean all the way down to like minus 150 for Velasquez. All right. Just under an hour. And uh, we are getting to the main event here. Quick reminder for you guys to hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. Appreciate everybody checking out the show to this point. Uh, reminder, the MMA Lawcast for UFC 282 will drop tomorrow evening. Uh, so keep your eyes peeled for that. And by tomorrow, I mean Tuesday evening, as I'll be completing my tape over the next 24 hours. So keep out, keep your eyes out for that. And also, I will be covering LFA. I'll be dropping a main event breakdown on my YouTube page, but the rest of the LFA breakdowns, excuse me, will be dropping on the Patreon. So keep your eyes peeled for that if you're on the Patreon already or hop on the Patreon and you can see the LFA breakdowns once they drop. I think props normally come out like, or sorry, odds for LFA normally comes out like two days before the event. So I'm expecting by Wednesday and I'm hoping by Wednesday evening or at least Thursday afternoon, I should have the whole best bets and props article for LFA complete. And uh, hopefully we can cash some tickets on there as well. Last thing I'll say before I get to the main event here, if you guys are still looking for a book to bet on with uh, UFC, whatever, because of this whole uh, sanction that was just passed in, in Ontario where we can no longer, uh, you know, for the license book, we can no longer bet on UFC. I got you guys covered. Bet online, Bodog. Links are in the description below. Click those. We get, both get a little bit of a kickback for the referral link, and you can go back to betting on UFC. I got you guys. Don't worry about that. All right. Main event. We're getting right back into the Bantamweight uh, Grand Prix semifinal here. This is actually a title fight as well. Uh, let me just quickly clarify here because I can't recall if Rafion Stotts is the... Yes, so Rafion Stotts is the interim Bantamweight champion and he won that honor by defeating Juan Archuleta in the first round of this tournament. That was for the vacant interim title as Rafion Stotts' former training partner, Sergio Pettis, the current Bantamweight Bellator champion, uh, is injured. And he could not take part in the, um, in the, uh, the, the Grand Prix here. So... Likely the winner of this Grand Prix will fight Sergio Pettis next year. Looking forward to that. But business to take care of this weekend. And it's Rafael Stotts looking to defend the interim title against Danny Sabatello. This is a great and phenomenal grappling matchup. It could play out very boring. But I think from a stylistic approach and how both of these guys have a grappling pedigree, it's going to be interesting to see who is able to establish it. Now, Rafael Stotts has a very impressive record of 16-1. and one. Or 18 and 1, sorry. His only loss coming to Marab Devalishvili, which was a 15 second spinning back fist knockout. I believe that was for the uh, looking for a fight series as well, which ended up earning Marab Devalishvili a UFC contract. But that was back in June of 2017. So we are coming up on, uh, let me do my quick math here, four and a half years, right? Four, five and a half years coming up on. Um, uh, the, the last loss that Rafael Stotts has taken. Since that fight, I believe, uh, what is that, three, six, nine, ten fight winning streak. Uh, last one, obviously, a, a knockout victory over Juan Archuleta uh, and obviously a title clinching performance for him as well. He's a solid all-around fighter. His striking game, very patient, uh, uses a lot of explosions. Um, 
you know, no real combinations, but that's where he can chip away at his opponents. His grappling, probably the best part of his game as he can really drag guys to the ground and, uh, you know, put them through the ringer. He was able to submit Cass Bell in the third round of their fight back in July of 2020, utilize superior grappling against Keith Lee. Josh Hill outstruck him, stuffed the takedowns, even landed uh, takedowns of his own. Magomed Magomedov, stuffed takedowns, landed more damaging strikes on the feet, landed even some good uh, takedowns of his own. Juan Archuleta, that's the fight where we saw him struggle a little bit, right? Let me uh, see if I can actually get uh, Archuleta Scott's scorecards. See if they actually released these. Uh, yeah, I believe Stotts was down two rounds. I think Juan Archuleta was really starting to move ahead. Uh, let me just confirm that here. Yeah, uh, there, there are no official odds or, or scorecards out there. But uh, from memory, especially that second round, I do recall Warren Archuleta really starting to take over. It seemed like Stotts was having some issues in terms of getting Archuleta off of him from the cage. Uh, and, you know, it, it was like that chain wrestling style of Archuleta that caused Stotts some problems. That's what Danny Sabatello is very good at. Like, this guy does not give up on takedowns because the striking game is not there. It's really not there. Stotts is clearly going to have the advantage there, but it's the consistent wrestling, the consistent, uh, you know, pushing forward and seeking the legs and the double legs, transitioning to the single leg. You know, if that gets stuffed, going to the back, trying to drag him to the ground from there. Like, I've never seen somebody who is as committed to the takedowns and has such good grip strength that Danny Sabatello has that so many opponents have fell beneath him because they can't keep up with that pace. Now I get it. You look at Danny Sabatello's record, you see that nice 13-1 record, and you see that loss against Erwin Rivera back in December of 2019, right before COVID hit. But you look into that fight and you see, like, Sabatello still kind of green. Like, you know, up until that point, he had finished, uh, what is it, five out of his six fights in the first round. There's one fight that went the distance, but five out of his six fights, he's finishing all these guys in the first round. Then he's forced to go deep. He has to go into the fourth round against Erwin Rivera for the Titan FC title. And he slows down. He gasses. Erwin Rivera hurts him significantly, finishes him. Since that fight, though, Danny Sabatello has gone the distance numerous times, not to mention 25 minutes the last time around against Leandro Higo in the opening round of this Bellator Bantamweight Grand Prix. He's grinded out Brett Johns, Jornel Lugo, Leandro Higo, DeMond Blackshear, a lot of big names that he's been able to grind all to a decision victory. Obviously, he's known as the uh, reject on the 2020 edition of the Contender Series because Dana White believed he was too one-dimensional. He was so um, dominant I think he beat his opponent like 30-24 and 30-25s across the board, yet Dana was like, he's too one-dimensional, we don't need him. And he's been proving them wrong ever since then. And, you know, you can be too, too one-dimensional, but you can still be very goddamn dominant. And the one thing that we have to give to Sabatello is that he doesn't just lay on the guys, right? He's actually consistently throwing output. I think maybe once or twice I remember seeing on tape that the referee actually stood them up. But he stays active on top. He throws shots. He actively looks to Baskar. But even if he can't, he's actively throwing shots and making his opponents work off their back. So this is just a long ways to say that I really do think that that wrestling style of 
Um, wow, I got Stotts versus Mix on here. My bad, guys. <laughs> I completely butchered that. Let me just quickly fix that here. Stotts versus Sabatello. Wow. This is what I get for doing a lucky late night version of this. But uh, yeah, I think that chain wrestling style of Sabatello is going to be a little bit too much for Stotts here. Seeing how much Stotts was struggling in terms of getting off the cage against a guy like Juan Archuleta. Now you're going to have Stotts, or sorry, Sabatello, who's so goddamn good at pushing guys up against the cage, uh, having that grip strength, having that like ability to just clinch onto his opponents and then drag them to the mat when he finds that opportunity. I think that's going to be a little bit too much for Stotts here. My question is um can stots break out back into distance because that's where he's going to have the advantage i think he might have a pure jiu-jitsu advantage as well but i think that sabatello is really rounded at that part of his game and i think it's going to be hard for stots to really latch on to much of a submission to try to you know get a victory in that aspect the way that stots wins this fight in my opinion keep at distance outland him maybe knock him out but I think that uh, he's going to have a hard time doing so because he's going to have Sabatello stuck to him like glue the entire fucking time. So I personally already took a shot on Sabatello at plus 140. I think it was that was a damn good line. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be swayed by the fact that Stotts beat a guy like Magomed Magomedov. But I think that the difference, the main difference was that Sabatello is a much better chain wrestler, in my opinion, than what Magomedov brought to the table against Stotts. It seems like he almost ditched the, the grappling approach against Stotts because he was discouraged from all the times that he was getting shucked off. You know who's not going to get discouraged? Sabatello. Sabatello is not going to get discouraged. If he whiffs on the first couple of takedown attempts, that's not going to stop him from going out there and trying to secure another takedown after that. So pick his Sabatello. I think he captures the interim bantamweight title here, and I think he ends up beating whoever is on the other side of the bracket. Um, I think he's just a tough help. I don't care if his striking sucks. He's just such a beast and a, a master in that grappling realm that it's going to be hard for a lot of guys to keep up with him. And now that he's improved his cardio as well, I'd be surprised if we see a cardio dump like he had against Erwin Rivera almost three years ago now. All right. So Sabatello and Mix to meet in the finals. That is pretty much what I am predicting here. And I also think that Juliana Velasquez retain or regains her title and gets that decision victory over Liz Carmouche. There you guys go. Bellator 289, full card breakdown for you guys. I believe that was 14 fights. I could be off. Might be 13 fights. Might even be less than that. But I got through it all for you guys. Fights go down on Friday. Don't forget about that. Saturday, obviously, UFC 282. The MMA Lockcast pre-edited version of the 282 uh, full-card breakdown will drop tomorrow evening. So keep your guys, uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. I look forward to breaking down that card for you guys. I already got two bets. I already got my lock of the night play and my dog of the night play for that card. Both posted on the Patreon, but they will be free to the public on Friday before the fights. Also, if you guys just listen to the podcast tomorrow, I'm sure you guys can figure out who the hell I'm going to be betting on. All right. Appreciate everybody that stayed up and watched this episode of the Locky Late Night Edition of the MMA Lockcast. Uh, I'll be back at it tomorrow for UFC 282. Hope to catch you guys there for the premiere. Until then, peace out and good night, my friends.